This programme is brought to you by listener support and a donation from the North Village Arts District, hosting their first Friday gallery walk tonight from 6 till 9pm. Their five walkable blocks of art and music are free and open to the public. Venues will be celebrating Columbia's 200th birthday with cookies. More information available on Facebook. You are listening to 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I hope you will stay with me for the next hour as we trip the arts fantastic. This week's show traces its roots to the European arts of the Middle Ages, but as you will see, each of those roots has blooms that stretch into America. We have a medieval English king, immortalised by Shakespeare, transported to the Ozarks, a Dutch Reformation art genre, given a 2020 twist in Colombia, and an opera singer who is versed in 18th and 19th century European composers, but who tonight will be paying homage to an overlooked 20th century American composer. And what better place to start than with my countryman, William Shakespeare. Let's head out. I confess I have next to zero interest in the history of the British monarchy. I know it's my country and all that, but it always felt just like a list of dates and battles and bloody beheadings. Yes, Henry VIII was a bit of a scallywag and we all learned the mnemonic phase wives, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. And his daughter, Elizabeth I, did a lot of conquering and plundering. Then there was mean old Richard III who locked his two nephews in the tower and probably murdered them. But beyond that, it all feels rather dry and unappealing. But those medieval kings were great fodder for Shakespeare, whose set of four plays, Richard II, Henry IV, parts one and two, and Henry V, were all written around 200 years after their reigns. And Henry V, in which a young prince matures into a king and then wages war on France, opens at Maplewood Barn on July the 8th, but with a twist. And here to tell us why its tale of insult, treason, the march to war and surprising victory are still relevant to us today are the play's director, Dana Bocchi, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, <laughs> Mark Baumgartner. Good morning, Dana and Mark. Hello. Hello. <laughs> now, I know you may not be actually the Archbishop of Canterbury, but we'll get to who Canterbury is in a minute. So I seem to recall reading or being told that Maplewood Barnes' 2021 season is all about Missouri. And yet Henry V is about a long dead English king waging war on the French because he thinks he should be king of their country too. So I know from seeing some promotional photographs that your Henry is decidedly not an English king. So Dana, tell me about your Henry and his motley crew of advisors, traitors and soldiers. So yes. When you decide, okay, so the theme is the Missouri Bicentennial. Everything needs to either be set in Missouri or by a Missouri playwright or, you know, some connection to Missouri. And then how do you make Shakespeare work in that? 
And, you know, Shakespeare, the magic of Shakespeare, the reason, uh, one of the reasons I think a lot of theaters still do so much Shakespeare is you can play with it any way you want. And Shakespeare's not here to care. So <laughs> you can set it in, you know, steampunk 1920s, you can set it in the future, you, you know, you, there's so many things you can do. And so I was like, all right, so I need to think about a way that uh, we can, we can tailor a Shakespeare to Missouri. And as we were discussing it, Nathan, who is my assistant director, was like, he's like, you can just, you know, before we hitched our wagons to this insane idea, we were just brainstorming. <laughs> and uh, he's like, you can just, I mean, just pick one, just pick one. And you set it in Missouri. You don't even have to do anything. I'm like, you can't just do anything. Like, you can't just take Henry V and make it about the Civil War in Missouri. You can't just do that. <laughs> and then I stopped. I just froze. And he's like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, you're going to do it. And I'm like, shut up, maybe, maybe. And that was, I mean, we had that conversation probably a year and a half ago, and I couldn't let the idea go. So when the barn chose Henry V for the season, I applied to direct and I submitted my insane idea and they went for it. So you just take away all the French stuff and the English stuff and just make it about a land war. And, you know, also one of the reasons that Henry V isn't staged a whole lot. You know, there's lots of great movie adaptations, but there aren't a lot of play adaptations. You know, you don't see it on live theater because how do you have these huge battle scenes? How do you have, you know, these, these immense war scenes in a community theater on a budget? Like, how do you do that? Like, you can't, how do you get the people? So, and doing some more research about the Civil War in Missouri and uh, the kind of fighting that was very prevalent in Missouri was guerrilla warfare. So it was small bands roaming around, causing a lot of trouble. And I was like, if you do that, there's your there's your opposing sides. They don't have to be big battles because that's not a lot of what happened in Missouri. There were big battles, but a lot of it was just small bands roaming around you know, destroying property and killing each other. And we can absolutely do that. <laughs> so uh, that's how I kind of took this epic, heroic English warrior king and just made him the leader of a union guerrilla band in Missouri. Okay, so Henry is a, a unionist. Yes. And then the French are... <laughs> The, the French are the Confederates, yes. Okay. So were there any scenes that you really needed to keep from the original play, but were a struggle to translate from 15th century France to 19th century Missouri? Actually, no. Huh. Once, like, and that's, albeit if you have ever seen Henry V, it is every bit of a three-hour play. Um, my play is much, much shorter. So I just <laughs> kept cutting there is a lot in Henry V that does not track if you haven't also seen Richard II and Henry IV Part One and Two. Falstaff, who is one of the most beloved characters in Shakespeare, I think people love Falstaff, but they mention him, they talk about him. But if you haven't seen Henry IV, then you don't get it. So I did have to cut a lot of stuff that without prior knowledge didn't work. But in the end, there wasn't stuff that was like, well, I need to keep this, but it's hard to make it work. You just sort of tweak a, a England to a union here and a France to a, you know, rebellion here. And it, it wasn't hard to, 
keep stuff. It was it was easy to cut stuff. Were there same kind of question about the characters? Were there any essential characters from the original play that were difficult to fit into a Civil War production? I mean, I'm thinking of you know Mark is the Archbishop exactly. of Canterbury. <laughs> Mark, Mark. I mean, who does Canterbury become in this play? He's actually just uh, a rich landowner, and they're about to be taxed, and they need the distraction of the war to make everybody forget about the taxation. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm pushing Henry into battle so I can keep my wealth. So you don't have, there's no godly component about you at all? Oh, no, there's never a godly component about me. (laughs) Dana, was was there anybody that you had to cut? Um, I mean, obviously, there. I think there were 39 characters in the original play. And I think you have, what, 20, 21 or something? With some, obviously, some people doubling up. Were there any people that you were just like, nah, this doesn't work? Uh, yeah, uh, all the women, um, <laughs> which upsets me, but not when you decide, okay, I don't, I mean, Henry can be played by a woman. I don't care. You know, as long as you go in with this idea that you're going to have gender blind casting, it doesn't, it's not as painful, but all, there are four female characters in all of Henry V and none of them worked for the setting in Missouri. None of them worked for a civil war setting because two of the main, two or three of the main characters that are women. And I say main characters very loosely um, (laughs) are at the end because after Henry wins and the French King is like, Oh, you won here. Have my part of my country and my daughter. Just take her. I mean, that's essentially how it goes. So it ends with a wedding in very Shakespeare fashion. And that, There are no weddings that ended the Civil War. You know, like that's too neat and too clean. That's very Shakespeare. It's odd that it actually worked in history. So, you know, we threw out all of those female characters, like the princess, her mother, and her attendant, essentially, because we're not going to have a wedding. That's not how our show is going to end. Because even at the end of our show, you very much so get that this is just a pause in hostilities. This isn't really the end of anything. I wondered about that. I mean, I read that often the fifth act of Henry V is omitted because it feels superfluous and anticlimactic. You have this, yay, big victory, we won the war. And then like someone's walking down the aisle and it's an arranged marriage. It it doesn't really, <laughs> it doesn't really feel like it fits at the end of the play. So I guess was that an easy decision to get rid of Act Five? Yeah, for the most part. I kept bourbon, or not bourbon, Burgundy has this beautiful monologue at the end that basically talks about the evils of war. And he's like, you know, our children are not being educated. The fields are not being tended. You know, we should stop this. I love that monologue. And I love that I got to keep it because, you know, he's trying to convince them to stop fighting. And as far as we know, they do for a little while. So I got to keep a little bit of it. But yeah, it is it is sort of anticlimactic given the rest of the play. Uh, it's very Shakespeare. You know, we're going to end with a wedding and that's he doesn't care how out of place that seems. But uh, yeah, it ours wouldn't work that way. So Henry V is definitely not a comedy, but there are comedic elements in the play, mostly within the ranks of the soldiers. So Mark, tell me a little bit about how you translated that comedy into your production. Well, I I have to say, um, in the I, I play Canterbury in the in the first part of the show, 
And after he leaves the stage, then I transition over and I play um, a Union soldier named Williams. And then I also play a Confederate soldier at some point. I'm, it's a very schizophrenic <laughs> <laughs> play for me. But um, the way we translated our soldiers, it's a little more solemn, I think. It's a lot of ruminating on the horrors of war, basically. And so I, I don't know how funny we are. <laughs> <laughs> um, this time around, but I, I mean, it's a joy to play those characters because it's a, a lot of the, a lot of Henry is back and forth between these larger than life characters of Henry and, you know, the Southern general. And, and so to get to play these more down to earth, salt of the earth characters that are caught up in all this is, is kind of an interesting place to be. I like it. I mean, again, going back to the Shakespeare play, Fluellen, who is a Welsh soldier, obviously not a Welsh soldier in, in your play, but I mean, he has a lot of comedy. Now, you have Ronnie Rossi, so you're doing some gender blind casting on Fluellen. Right. Does he have any comedy, Dana, in this play? Not really. Uh, Ronnie brings comedy to anything if she wants to. So there, <laughs> there is a little bit of yeah. comedy, but it's very understated. It's very, it's not in anything Fluellen says. It's how Ronnie plays Fluellen. And there are some bits of comedy, but a lot of it is you have to be watching for it. The problem with Fluellen and those characters that were part of the comedic relief was one, uh, not really important to the story and two it was all based on like cultural stereotypes that mm. i'm not sure even if i had kept them would work you know like i don't know if people would get why it was supposed to be funny the way it was funny 400 years ago so we took a lot of that kind of humor out but there's still a lot of you know these are real people i tried to make them as real as possible so the problem with a lot of the shakespeare histories is that again they're they're these larger than life characters and they kind of become archetypes and i wanted this to feel real i wanted the the struggle of people in war to be more important than the patriotic messages that Henry sometimes has, particularly for, you know, England, but you could take it anyway. And I wanted it to be, and so my favorite scene probably in the whole show is between Williams, who Mark plays, Bates, and Henry, when Henry disguises himself and decides to walk out amongst his soldiers and see how what mood everybody's in, because they are outnumbered, they are tired, and they are facing a huge battle. And the three of them just sit and they talk and it's the most, I think it's the most real part of the play. And I love it. I love how it's still very relatable. I love how the language still somehow lends itself to more of a country Southern twang. Like it absolutely works, <laughs> even though it's complete Shakespeare. It's beautiful. And that scene starts out with Mark singing. We've worked some traditional Civil War songs into the show, which is another thing that I love you can do with Shakespeare. And so that scene starts pretty much with Mark and Corey singing a traditional Civil War ballad. In terms of the language, I mean, you're using original Shakespeare language. Have you adapted the play linguistically at all to reflect dialogue of the Ozark area? No. I mean, uh, we, we changed like specific names, specific titles, you know, there's no references to King Henry, it's just Henry, like everybody's titles became their last names. But no, I didn't change anything in terms of like a local dialect. And yet somehow, it works. And it's, it's just incredibly entertaining to see how well it did. Mark, did you know the premise for it when you auditioned that it was going to be set during the Civil War? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, then that's kind of what was exciting, like to be able to do 
Shakespeare and not have to do a uh, British accent was oh, very God, intriguing. I'm so glad. <laughs> I was so glad. I thought, oh, God, don't let them do British accents. No, it was great. And, and Dana told us from the beginning, she was like, now don't, I don't want anybody coming in and doing this with it either. <laughs> and so um, when I'm doing my, our, she was talking about that scene when we're sitting on the log. I started out and I did a little bit of this, and then I just kept going, seeing how far she let me go. <laughs> <laughs> and she never stopped me, so I found a place where I was comfortable. <laughs> That's where I stopped. <laughs> Presumably, Canterbury doesn't talk like that. No, no, I'm just I just use my regular accent. <laughs> on it. But I figured, you know, the the soldier he's kind of a he's just a good old farmer country boy that got drafted into battle. So now you say it's a lot shorter than three hours. What is the runtime? Would you say? I would say with intermission, it will still be less than an hour and a half. Okay. That seems very doable. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's got the best of everything. It's got the great speeches. It's got incredible action sequences. We have great fights. And then we've got music and, and then you're done. And, uh, I, like I said, I was pretty ruthless in the way that I cut this and I just kept the good stuff. And Adam Bretsky is playing Henry and he, of course, trains people in stage fighting. So yes. I'm guessing the stage fight scenes are fantastic. Yeah, he did great work <laughs> on the fight scenes for this show. And I am I am so pleased with how they turned out. Mark, do you have a fight scene? I have several. Ah. And I have some great fight scenes with several characters. But my favorite is my daughter's actually in this play, too, in her first show. And Adam faced us off against one another. So I get to have a uh, Vader luke skywalker showdown <laughs> with my daughter and it's it's amazing i hope she wins i love it uh yeah, to find out <laughs> but yes yeah, she does <laughs> well maplewood barnes production of henry v opens next thursday july the 8th and runs for two weekends with a final show on sunday july the 18th showtime is 8 p.m and you can see the full cast list and find out more at maplewoodbarn.com thank you so much dana and mark can't wait to see it thank you thank you so much for many years now, the Columbia Art League has curated the single artist exhibits that hang in Central Bank of Boone County's hallway gallery at their main office on the corner of Broadway and 8th in Columbia. And for the past couple of weeks, that space has been occupied by Bethany Irons with a series of digital illustrations that explore a 16th and 17th century Dutch tradition of Vanitas still life works. It's the tradition of painting that I've certainly seen in museums around the world, but as with so much in life, I didn't know there was a word for it. Bethany received her doctoral degree in art education here at Mizzou and will be joining the faculty at Stevens College this fall as the assistant professor of communication design. And I am thrilled that Bethany is here with us this morning to tell us more about the Vanitas genre and about her own series of works. Good morning, Bethany. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So to properly understand Vanitas works, we need to go back to what was happening in the art world at that medieval time when Europe was embracing Protestant Reformation and the idea of individual contemplation rather than communal prayer practice of Catholicism was taking over. And paintings and images, Protestants felt, were helpful for contemplation purposes. So tell us what exactly defined a Vanitas work. Sure. So a lot of of that work from, like you said, the 16th, 17th century Dutch still life paintings, they use common symbols that included objects that that have a shelf life uh, or relate to time passing in some way. So like fruit, 
plants, um, hourglasses, skulls, and yeah, the passage of time and the the fleeting nature of life. Uh, the word uh, vanitas is actually Latin for empty or vanity. And I thought that given our current time period, this was a very, very similar way in which artists in the past had processed an experience that was really, uh, you know, a time of flux. Um, and so, so yeah, I thought I would use this as sort of a lens to view and process the current experience that we've all lived in this past year of the pandemic. Well, another recurring idea in those early days of modern Europe was memento mori, reminders that we all must die. How do vanitas works differ from memento mori homages or are they kind of really in the same genre? They're really in the same genre and I'm using them both really very similarly uh, in this current body of work. And it's really about the honestly, the fact that we're all going to die eventually. And that's something that, you know, we really all have had to grapple with this past year in ways that many of us don't usually have to confront or think about. Right. Well, so let's turn to your own series of works. Obviously, as you say, we've all been feeling a lot more mortal over the past 16 months. So did this series start before the pandemic or was this really pandemic inspired? Where did it start for you? Yeah, this project is really about my time during the pandemic. So uh, it actually started a couple of weeks after we, we went into lockdown. And it started initially out of boredom uh, and also kind of a, um, you know, a small bit of control that I could have amidst this chaos and uncertainty that was happening all around us. And that was a time, you know, and it really continues to be a time when it's very evident just how out of control we all are of our circumstances. And it was really evident, you know, that things can change in an instant. Um, and art making, I guess, has really always been some way in which I can gain some sense of control back. You know, I can control what goes into the piece, the colors, the narrative, how it's made. Um, so yeah, it was really about one, entertaining myself, uh, from boredom and monotony to gaining a feeling of control amidst chaos. Uh, but it was also about, sort of a call into the void, you know, and making my experience visible. This is how I'm getting through this. And this is also how we are all sharing in it. Well, I mean, it's it's a it's a pretty big series of work. I don't know if I've seen all of them. All of them are on display at the bank. I think it's just a selection of them. I mean, did mm-hmm. you anticipate at the outset this was going to go on and on and on and you're going to produce such a large body? Or did you think you were doing four or five? You know, I I typically work in series, and so I, I kind of anticipated that this would be an ongoing thing. And I mean, much like the pandemic, I didn't think that it would last this long. And yeah, it really just kept going on and on um, as the pandemic has kept going on and on. And so there's 26 total in the series, and... I haven't done one for a few months now, but I think that I will probably pick it back up again. But it's just something that that really resonated with me with the time, with, you know, what we're all sharing in right now. And it also really um, 
was something that it connected to art history, um, to history just in general, and just a way that, you know, again, I could, I could make my experience visible and share in that with everyone else who was going through it as well. Vanitas works are, uh, there's, there's a component of disorder about them, as well as motifs and objects that appear there. It's this jumbled collection of objects, almost like you were setting up a still life painting for a class and, and what you put in there. And so each of your works has as its recurring motif, a wooden block desk calendar, each showing different dates, presumably the dates on which you were either producing the work or referring to. So tell me a little bit about the dates. Some of them seem sequential and some of them are maybe months later, but it's like, you know, November the 3rd or November the 8th. Tell me about those dates and your choice of objects. So the dates were a way that I could show the passage of time and a way that I could also document this is what was happening on this particular day, because every day sort of seemed to blend into the next as well. And so I wanted to show that visually. And I thought that that, that would be a, a good way to do it. You know, it's something that, that we keep on a stand in our living room. And as far as the objects that go into these, they they have to do with the traditional, the vanitas uh, symbolic references, right? To time, of course, the dates. You'll see clocks in there as well. Then also fruit, right? Fruit uh, typically in these works are in their most ideal state, but soon they will rot and soon they will be no more. And uh, there was also cleaning supplies, uh, lots of those in there because I, I'm typically a very clean, ordered person to begin with, um, and this kind of heightened my my obsession around cleaning as well. And then there's also items of play in there too, Scrabble pieces, ways in which I tried to keep some sense of um, playfulness and humor in my life amidst what was, you know. And what is continues to be a very serious circumstance. As, as we you said earlier, skulls were one of the motifs that occurred often in Vanitas paintings. And you only have a skull in one of your series. So I'm curious about your skull philosophy. Sure. The the skulls, I thought I'd throw one in there because that's pretty quintessential, <laughs> right. uh, especially with, you know, Momentum Mori as well. Um, and uh, it was more of a humorous sort of tongue in cheek thing. But um but I wanted to, you know, include things that were maybe a little more symbolic and a little more um, softer, I guess. And also, I did not have a skull uh, around my house. So that <laughs> was kind of made up. Uh, but most of the objects that I included in my work, these were things that I actually used and that I had around my house. When you look at many of the historic Vanitas works, there is a a brooding darkness, a reminder of how death is perpetually stalking us. But your works are quite the contrary. They are colourful and bright and it does not feel like death is lurking. They feel full of life's eclectic abundance. So to what extent did you want that idea of mortality to be embedded within the colour scheme of your work or the objects? Sure. So... It's important to me, and it was important to me throughout, you know, especially the past year, that I keep light about certain things um, because I can uh, fall deep into the spiral if if I let myself. And so keeping things, you know, with a little bit of humor, a little bit of light, color, keeping things 
positive in some ways was really important to me. This wasn't just about documenting my time or uh, showing, you know, a passage of time, but it was also really the lens through which I was experiencing this and, and really how I got through it. And keeping humor, keeping play, something that was a part of my daily existence was really important. And so I tried to show that through through the colors and through the objects that I included in the work. So while there's always that that seriousness behind it, the lightness was also very important to me that that was included as well. You have one work that has a photograph of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in it. Tell us about that piece. Sure. So that was um, that was kind of one way in which I was documenting this time. There was also, you know, when Biden got elected and things that were symbols, symbols of hope, symbols of perseverance. Those were those were important to me. And while I typically don't make work that sort of hits you over the head with political messages, those ones were important to me. Those were those were things that happened during this year that I felt like were were still in some ways embedded into what we've all been going through this past year. And were just little symbols of hope that, you know, again, that was really important that um, that I included it in this series because that's really important in how I live my life. Were there extra motifs that you felt were more pertinent today? I mean, like, you know, cleanliness and cleaning, that seemed to be a theme that went through because that is certainly the time that we're living in. Was there anything else like that that you felt, well, they weren't really relevant in 16th century Netherlands, but today you want to include them? There are references to the climate with uh, climate change. It's interesting. I'm on Instagram a lot and there's this whole section of society who's very much into the outdoors, right? And about um, visiting national parks and uh, and all of this. But much of the way that, you know, many of us live is not really in service of the environment. And so I thought that that was an interesting sort of contradiction that I see a lot, you know, just in modern times that wasn't necessarily such a big deal in 16th, 17th centuries. So you'll see a lot about the national parks. There's a a postcard for, uh, that shows Devil's Tower. I grew up in South Dakota and Wyoming, and so that was that was something that I visited a lot. But also, travel was something that is very prevalent now, but hasn't really been this past year. And I've never been, you know, a huge traveler, but always wanted to. But yeah, this past year, you know, we haven't been able to do that. And so that was something that maybe I longed for a little bit more than than what I had in the past. So so yeah, travel, um, having the postcards there, the references to climate also. There's also healthcare. Later on in the series, I included like a bill that I got from my doctor uh, for a medication that's astronomically expensive that I also included in there, which still does relate to life, death, struggle, right? But but in a more modern way. So these are digital paintings. So in terms of if people wanted to acquire one, do you have an, a limited number edition on each work? Yes, I have 10 uh, for for the edition for each of these. So the ones that are up at Central Bank are the first of 10. 
Well, Bethany Iron's series of Vanitas works can be seen in the Hallway Gallery of Central Bank of Boone County at 8th and Broadway in Columbia through July the 19th. Bethany, thank you so much for such an interesting journey into the world of Vanitas works. Thank you so much for having me. On last week's show, Odyssey Chamber Music Series director Ayako Suruta talked about their Como Bicentennial Concerts, the Columbia version of which takes place tonight at First Baptist Church and features the guest soprano Carleen Waugh, who is my next guest this morning. Today, the Jamaican-born soprano is the assistant professor of voice at Marshall University in West Virginia, but it was not too long ago that she could be found at Lincoln University in Jefferson City. Today, she performs around the world with orchestras such as the St. Petersburg Symphony in Russia and companies like the International Opera Theatre. And she was just announced as one of 35 Black and Latinx music professionals who will work with the Cleveland Institute of Music's 2021 Future of Music Faculty Fellowship to help create a culture of diversity and catalyze change in both the classical musical world and the academia that supports it. Carleen Moore, what a delight to have you on the show this morning. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get to chatting about your new fellowship and how we can all be catalysts for change, I want to know a bit more about you. I know you were born in Jamaica and you earned a Doctor of Musical Arts in Vocal Performance from Louisiana State University. But I'm curious what happened in between (laughs) and where it all started. Did you grow up in a musical family? Okay, let me tell you, I have just the wildest background. Um, I of course, I grew up in Jamaica. I remember saying to my my sister, I remember at the age of seven saying, I want to be a singer. And she was like, uh, that's not a real job. <laughs> <laughs> and then she, you know, she prodded and she was like, you mean a singer like Bob Marley? And I'm like, no, a singer like Whitney Houston. That's what I want. And looking back at it now, I'm thinking, you know, that's that was my way in my innocence. That was my way of saying I didn't want to sing. Um, I didn't want to to perform the, the music that I heard around me. I wanted to do something that was different. And I mean, I love I love Jamaican music. I love reggae. I love dancehall. I enjoy it tremendously. But I always gravitated towards classical music and this was without a lot of exposure so I you know I remember growing up and singing in school choirs and stuff and I would look around me and I think I was enjoying it a little bit more than everybody else (laughs) so my my teachers saw that and they nurtured it as best as they could but unfortunately at the time we did not have a bachelor's of music degree in Jamaica. So I had to come to the US, which I did. And I did my bachelor's. And as you said, I did my master's at the University of Mississippi. And then I went on to LSU to do my doctorate. So that's where I am. (laughs) That's how I got here. Well, I mean, it's a long way from Whitney Houston to Carmen. I know. How did you (laughs) make that transition? (laughs) You know, um, when, when I was there, as a teenager, I had this little secret, not a secret anymore. Um, we had a, one radio station that would play one hour of opera and musical theater. And I would just hide away and listen to it. And that, that's actually, that was my exposure. 
you know, and I was like, this is the music of my soul. (laughs) This is the music of my 14 year old soul. (laughs) What was it about it? Was it the soaring female vocals? What, what really grabbed you? I like the ability to, so people won't believe me when I say this, but I'm an introvert and I love the ability to use music to talk to people and the storytelling. And I would just be so enthralled with these beautiful lines that expressed a story, an an experience, you know? Yeah, I I wasn't a normal kid. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, you know, from liking it, I mean, having a soprano voice, I mean, you, was that something that came naturally to you or was it something that you really, really had to work at? So I, you know, all my friends would sing. I I went to a high school that had a wonderful performing arts program and all my, my friends, they were singing gospel and, and R and B and, you know, other genres that, that I love. And I just had this really high voice that didn't stand out when I did other genres, and I, I recognize that. But once I started singing classical music, it was just a perfect fit. Um, and of course, I had to work extremely hard developing my skills. But I think my voice itself at the time just lended itself more to that genre. What was the first operatic role that you sang that you thought, yeah, I made it? Um, I would say my favorite role, which I only did recently, Mimi La Boheme. I have waited for so long (laughs) to sing that. And I finally had a chance to do it with the Peach State Opera. As a part of their, when was that? 2019 season? 18, 2018-19 season. And as a teenager, what was your first operatic role when you were discovering your classical voice? Okay, here's the thing. (laughs) I sang pieces from, which isn't quite opera, but I sang pieces from Phantom of the Opera, (laughs) musical theater. So doing that... I realized, oh, I can really get into musical theater, um, which eventually led me to opera. We've often talked on this show about the importance of representation for children to see people like them on the stage. And yet, despite people like Marian Anderson and Jesse Norman and Leontine Price, there were not a huge number of black and brown operatic role models. So who inspired you? My inspiration came from all of the names that you mentioned. Um, yeah, I, I really, Kathleen Battle, as a teenager um, in Jamaica, I would listen to her a lot. Um, yeah, yeah, Kathleen Battle stood out for me, just in terms of the beauty of her instrument, the way she used it. She uses it, rather. You've performed 
across Europe, the Caribbean, and here in the United States. And I'm always curious whether you feel European audiences, in what way they're different than American audiences, if they're more ready to embrace diverse casting or whether you find Europe and America kind of on a par. In terms of casting, um, I can't speak too much about casting in particular, but I can say that one of the biggest difference that I've witnessed is in Europe, music is everywhere. Classical music is everywhere. You go to the malls, you walk on the street there, you'd be in a mall and suddenly an opera is, is taking place, <laughs> you know, um, and accessibility to it. It's, it's very open to everyone. And I think here in the U.S., we are making a push to that accessibility, but we still have a long way to go. It's also terribly expensive. So it economically is inaccessible to a lot of people. Yes, yes, yes. But I, and like so many other people, I, I particularly try to, as a part of my artistry, to do a lot of outreach and to take classical music in general to unusual places. You know, I think we have to sometimes get out of the theaters and go to the people. You know, so I've worked with a number of people who just have that mindset. It's accessible to everyone, but if people don't see it, they won't know. I'm curious also about your experience as a woman in the world of opera. I read an interview with a contemporary female composer called Missy Mazzoli, who was in New York Times, and she said it was such a male-dominated world and that she sees a lot of men given opportunity based on potential Whereas with women, people want to see proof before they give you an opportunity. So I'm wondering what your experience has been. I mean, obviously, you straddle the worlds of academia and performance, so they may be different. But what's been your experience as a woman in the world of opera? Well, you know, just like so many other industries, we recognize that there are issues. Um, we still aren't we still aren't seeing as many um, there's a wealth of wonderful composers and, you know, female composers and conductors and, and, and performers. But we, we still aren't seeing as many as we should. And I think there are many initiatives happening right now. Um, I think the world is definitely trying to be more open. And I do my own part by showing up and um, as much as possible, as often as possible, programming music by female composers. The program tonight will have, I'll be singing pieces by Florence Price, um, who's just a brilliant composer who for so long, her music just kind of fallen by the wayside. Right. And that's very exciting. I think that Florence Price, as you say, she's been overlooked as a black female composer for a long while, and she definitely deserves her day in the spotlight. And I think of other contemporary female black and brown composers, like one of your compatriots, a British Jamaican composer called Shirley Thompson, or the mm -hmm. Cuban-American Tanya Leon, or another UK-based Jamaican female composer, Eleanor Alberga. And mm -hmm. I think how much more exciting it would be to hear their works performed and sung rather than, you know, Brahms and Schubert and even Mozart. How adverse or positive, I guess, in some cases, do you find companies in, in programming contemporary compositions? Well, you know, I, I think it just depends on who you, who you ask the question. Of course, we have this wonderful history 
of pieces, a huge inventory of, of historic pieces, which remain relevant today. But in my opinion, I just feel like current music, um, new music, is really written in our vernacular. And there, there are great benefits to opening that up to, to everyone. Mm-hmm. I think that classical audiences are on the decline, it seems. And if there were more contemporary compositions where, you know, you could kind of meet the composer and you saw different diversity on the stage, it would make classical music so much more relevant and exciting yeah. to people. Yeah. And and we would possibly open up to a new audience. Right. Which we need to do. Otherwise, you know, the older audiences are slowly demising. and We need to find new audiences. Again, looking at Europe and America in terms of contemporary programming, is one continent more progressive than the other? I think, I think in Europe, they are doing interesting revivals and just revisiting the more historic pieces and bringing just new, uh, just a new approach to the historic pieces. But I do also see a trend in um, openness to to more contemporary pieces as well. So yeah, I, I do think there there is a little bit more drive in that area. Well, let's take a listen to a clip of you singing. This is actually you singing Johannes Brahms. It's a German requiem called Ye Now Are Sorrowful.
And that was my guest this morning, singing Ye Now Are Sorrowful by Johannes Brahms. So, Carleen, tell me a little bit about your new fellowship with the Cleveland Music Institute and the role that you play and you want to play within academia to create a platform upon which the next generation of Black and Latinx performers can stand. What are you hoping to focus your fellowship on? Well, the Future of Music Fellowship is just this wonderful initiative sponsored by the Sphinx Venture Fund and conducted by the Cleveland Institute. And we started last weekend and it has been just an amazing experience. We're um, connected in classes with just leading figures and we're paired with faculty mentor. Just it's 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 really wonderful. My focus, my personal goal as an artist is you've heard me say this before, uh, accessibility. When I take up a piece of music, I think about how if I took this back home to Jamaica and I'm singing for an audience who has never experienced classical music, how can I get them to appreciate that? And I approach every piece of music that way. And I I really feel like this, for me, this is the path that I want to take. I want to bring music to people who've never experienced it. So I'm hoping that through this fellowship, I'll be able to to clearly define a path in regards to that and see where it goes. Um, I teach at Marshall University, which I serve students who are first-generation college students, you know, so they are actually coming to classical music with this in with this freshness mm. and it's so wonderful to take a piece of music that was written in i don't know 1790 or something and say how does this apply to you how how do you feel about it have that kind of conversation with them so as a teaching artist i get to live you know live the experience and i get to take my students along with me. So I'm looking for, for more ways to do that. And that's, that's what I, I hope to gain from the fellowship. Do you see, um, again, talking about those contemporary composers, do you see people programming in academia a more diverse or contemporary syllabus? Because the difficulty, of course, is, is that you can't ask contemporary musicians or singers to perform works that they haven't had a chance to study. And that means their teachers need to have studied them. And so it's kind of this vicious circle. Everybody knows Mozart, mm-hmm. nobody knows Shirley Thompson. So how do you how do you build that into the uh, the schedule for teaching? Well, well, personally, I did a lot of contemporary music throughout my studies. So I think and for a while in my in my limited view I thought that contemporary music was the place for contemporary music was within academia because I I just did so much of it. I think going beyond academia is probably what we we should we should strive for. Getting it on the stages. Yeah, yeah. To the general audience, um, my students each semester they have to do something contemporary, at least one piece. So I think I think the world, the academic world is has been keeping up with with the output of new music. 
So before we close, tell us a little bit more about what you're going to be singing tonight and what it is that you love about this piece of music. So I will be singing, again, I'll be singing uh, pieces by Florence B. Price. And uh, these pieces are just, just amazing. Um, the Where to begin? Florence Price is a musical genius who we have just not given as much attention as, as she deserves. Um, I'm starting with a Sympathy, which was written for for her daughter. Then I go on to Night, Hold Fast to Dreams, and my favorite, which is Words for a Spiritual, which the the text was actually, uh, came from a newspaper. Someone had submitted a poem in the newspaper and she said it just so brilliantly. It's just wonderful music that uh, speaks to, speaks to, me personally, my experiences, but I believe that in hearing it and in seeing the program, you'll you'll find that it speaks to many of our experiences. Just wonderful. Perfect. Well, my guest this morning, Carleen War, will be performing with the Odyssey Chamber Music Series tonight at 7pm at First Baptist Church in Columbia in a programme that includes works by Florence Price, Fred Onoveriswaki, Brahms and Gershwin. There are no tickets required for this concert and it is free admission. So just turn up and if you would prefer to wear a mask, you are very welcome to do so. You can also find out more about Carleen on her website, carleenwar.com and that's C-A-R-L-I-N-E W-A-U-G-H Colleen, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Well, as it is not every week, we have an international soprano chatting with us. Let's close this week's show with another aria from Carleen War. This is Lausanne, Lumiel and Cella from the opera Adriana Le Couvreur by Francesco Cilea, recorded live with the Ohio Symphony Orchestra, conducted by maestro Stephen Wang.
that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests today, director Dana Bocchi and actor Mark Baumgartner from Maplewood Barn, artist Bethany Irons and soprano Carleen Waugh. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Mid-Missouri. Mm-hmm.